Welcome to the Eucharist Podcast with Wyoming Catholic College, responding to the call for Eucharistic renewal by sharing wisdom in God's country. I'm Jeremy Holmes, Academic Dean at Wyoming Catholic College. And I'm Kyle Washett, its President, and welcome to this episode. In our very first episode, when we talked about why we at Wyoming Catholic College are very excited to join the year of Eucharistic renewal and uh, respond to the crisis of faith of our times, we said we were excited for two basic reasons. First, we work on this technical language with our students all the time. We have these conversations showing how the church's seemingly abstruse language is actually just capturing every Catholic's real living experience of the Eucharist. And we have that conversation in an especially vibrant way here at Wyoming Catholic College because we have both the Western and Eastern liturgical traditions of the church present and active on campus. Uh, And so there's a certain um, energy to the conversation that comes out of having two fairly different traditions regarding the Eucharist uh, in conversation with each other. So, for example, uh, transubstantiation is not really the terminology normally deployed by the Eastern Catholic churches. Uh, It really is more coming out of the West's confrontation with crises regarding the Eucharist. So we were very excited excited, uh, for the first part just to um, bring to you the conversations that we have the opportunity to have year in and year out. And to this point in the series, we have done that. We have talked about uh, transubstantiation and substance and accidents and these technical words. We have showed how that reveals the mystery of the Eucharist as intimacy, the the mystery of the Eucharist as, uh, as to be adored, the mystery of the Eucharist as sacrifice. But the second reason we gave for why we at Wyoming Catholic College are in particular excited to join this year of Eucharistic renewal is because there is an often overlooked way in which the Eucharist is a wilderness meal, and we see our education as fundamentally an education in the wilderness where our our students come Uh, out to the center of Wyoming, far from the centers of of civilization, and then we even send them, even from Tiny Lander, out into the wilderness. Um, And so the wilderness is the constant backdrop against which we partake of the banquet of wisdom. And so we we, we feel a profound connection with the Eucharist in, in our particular context. Right. And there, to understand why the wilderness and the Eucharist go together so well, it's worth drilling a little bit more into the scriptural story about the wilderness and the Eucharist. Right, particularly going back to the Old Testament. So there, I think, in fact, we can go back to the very beginning. Because the very beginning of the Old Testament is fundamentally a story about eating outside. Adam and Eve... They're in a garden. They're told, don't eat this thing. They do eat this thing. And they're cast out of the garden into the wilderness, into uncultivated land. And from then on out, and maybe it's because 
Here at Wyoming, having the experience of traveling through uncultivated land and being hungry, this especially strikes me. But it does seem to me that throughout the story of the Old Testament, there's an oft-repeated motif of God bringing his people into the wilderness and providing food for them in a remarkable, even at times miraculous way. And even if it's not miraculous, it's at least connected to a major moment in salvation history. Right, so wilderness then has this double side to it, right? On the one hand, the wilderness is that into which we were cast from the garden. It's the place of this valley of tears that we're currently in. It's the journey that we're on. It's the sign that we're not home. On the other hand, it's the place... To, to which God has called us out of the Egypt and the sin and the misery that we were embroiled before he saved us. And in fact, that seems to be part of the message of the wilderness in terms of God's communication to his people. Wilderness becomes both a place of suffering and purification, but also a place of encounter, a place of meeting the Lord in a new way in our brokenness, in our fallenness, and one of the ways he responds to us in that is by feeding us in some particular way. So what what strikes me there is there's a number of points we can make, but uh, there's four main stories that that stand out to me where, where this comes out. The first, of course, is the story of the Israelites in the desert. But there's two key elements there. There's the story of the manna, And there's the story of the miraculous eating that they do at the foot of Mount Sinai when they enact the covenant. So we want to tell both of those stories. But there's also an important story about David and his men when Israel is sort of being reconstituted again under the kingship of David. And David and his men are hungry and they flee out into the wilderness and they're fed. And lastly, there's the story of the prophets, the story in the prophet Elijah and the story in the prophet Joel of prophets having an experience of hunger and then having, again, a new experience of encounter, a new promise of a covenant in the context of God sustaining food. So let's let's start with the first one. Let's, let's start with the story of Israel. So starting with Egypt, uh, you know, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I think a lot of us tend to forget that this particular bit. The opening demand was, let my people go a three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to me. Uh, right. It was not a pledge of immediate uh, ending of slavery. The first ask was, let them go into the wilderness to offer sacrifice. And we need to remember that in the context of offering sacrifice, it's always eating. Yes. So it's, so they're, exactly. So, so one of the things that's... Um, that Moses says to Pharaoh is, well, you know, uh, we're going to be sacrificing animals that might be precious to the or sacred to the Egyptians, and this would be offensive. And part of the offense is that you're eating them as part of the whole sacrificial ritual. And so, uh, of course, we know how the story goes, right, that Pharaoh does not respond well to the demand. Uh, God comes in with the ten plagues and brings judgment, as he says, on the gods of Egypt, and eventually Pharaoh, you know, drives them out of Egypt, and in the end we have the whole um, crossing of the Red Sea, uh, and, and that whole uh, um, scene, which has been, you know, sort of the the favorite moment for Old Testament movie makers, um, and uh, but in the end, they they do what 
God originally demanded, they come out into the wilderness, arrive at Mount Sinai to offer sacrifice to the Lord. What's strikey there is that there's a period when uh, this narrative is a little bit hard to understand when the manna starts coming to Israel. Does it come before Mount Sinai or does it come after Mount Sinai? Mm -hmm. And the story and the way it comes together, it's a little bit unclear. Um, Because they're wandering in the desert and they get hungry and they're already wishing that they were back in Egypt. And then they get to Mount Sinai and they're at Mount Sinai for, what is it, six months or a year where they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then they go wander again, again, for another 40 years. And it's a little bit unclear in the different narratives that we have in Exodus when exactly the manna comes. When does God first start giving them the manna? Is it miraculous food that gets them to the base of Mount Sinai and then through the desert? Or is it miraculous food that comes sort of post-Mount Sinai? Um, and in the end, I think it's probably both. Um, so let's, let's talk about the manna before we talk about the Mount Sinai eating. Right. So, you know, obviously the fundamental context here is that they are on a journey out of Egypt. They are going to the land that God has said will be their permanent home. In between Egypt and home, there is this wilderness where where there is no food, and God provides this um, strange new food that appears each morning such that no matter how much they, they gather, whether they, an individual gathers a little or gathers a lot, when he gets back to his tent, he's got just the right amount for today. If they try to hoard it up and, and, and store it for the next day, it doesn't work. It goes bad. They're told not to do that, but to trust in the Lord day to day that their sustenance will be provided. Um, and when the, um, when the Israelites see the food... Um, they, they look at it and they say, what is it? What is it? Which in Hebrew is mana. And now that's what we call it. So mana is, is, is uh, it could be brought into English as what's it. What's it? They're eating the what's it in the wilderness, trusting day by day that, Lord, that the Lord will give them the mysterious uh, what's it. And there's something even additionally mysterious about the manna is that it can be it's gathered in a double portion before the Sabbath. So you don't have to break the Sabbath to gather manna. Right. To so there's, eat. there's nothing mechanical about that oh this is only good for a day and then it, then it goes bad. No, it's 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 there for the day because the Lord has provided it for the day. Right. So it's a bread ish food that is intended to get them to an encounter with the Lord and specifically to sustain them in their observance of the Lord's commands. And it coalesces on the plants and, and on the ground in the morning, kind of just down out of the air. Um, and so, you know, in the, the wisdom literature, as they're reflecting on this, they, 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 they call it the bread from heaven, that, that it, it just comes down and settles there. And, and then as they, they think about that, the bread from heaven, which is not like other breads, it's got a mysterious nature to it, it's there to support you in observing the Lord's command commandments. They they th- they they begin to refer to it in the wisdom literature as the bread of angels. Right. So there's something very very mysterious about this. It is something heavenly, but it's again sustenance 
precisely in the context of wandering or searching for God. Right? The, the Israelites are not at Mount Sinai. The Israelites are wandering in the desert because they're being punished because they don't trust God. And yet, even in the midst of that exile kind of wandering, they're being nourished on the bread of angels in a miraculous way. So, that's okay, that's the first motif for wilderness eating. I think that's just in and of itself, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. But the second motif for wilderness eating is what happens at the base of Sinai. So the Israelites go, they gather, they offer sacrifice, they're going to enact the covenant. God has spoken in this miraculous way, thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. They're trembling, they prepared themselves. This is an incredible encounter with the Lord. And in the enactment of the covenant, they sacrifice the animals, they set up the pillars, and Moses and some of the elders are admitted up onto a certain plane of the mountain, a certain level of the mountain that the rest of Israel is not allowed to enter into. And they eat and drink before the throne of God. Right, and the text specifically observes, and they did not die. Right. <laughs> which is which is a remarkable thing, right? Because the the, the the presence of the Lord is so such an overwhelming thing that the Lord actually has said explicitly, no man can see me and live. And so there, there's this, um, uh, you know, sort of survivor mentality here. Like we ate with the Lord, and it didn't kill us. And and somehow that eating enacts their status. They're the kind of people who are able to eat in the presence of the Lord and be unharmed. And they do it on this mountain, which we've talked about before. The mountain seems to be this kind of meeting place between heaven and earth. Uh, that God comes down and Israel goes up and there's this point where God's resting his feet on the sky above the elders and they're eating together. And it's not clear, is have they entered into heaven to eat or has heaven come down to the mountain for, for them to eat before it? Or in some mysterious way, is it both? And so here, again, we're in the wilderness, we're eating, but here we're eating in the wilderness in a place of encounter, in a place of heavenly transformation which is a very different accent on eating than what we had with the eating in the wilderness with manna. And yet, and yet, what God tells Moses to do is he instructs him to build the Ark of the Covenant and build this tent of meeting, which in a certain way is a kind of portable Mount Sinai. They're able to carry Mount Sinai around with them in this tent, in this tent of meeting, so that the encounter with God that happened on Mount Sinai can stay with Israel as they journey with uh, throughout the wilderness. So they, they can go up into this meeting place of heaven and earth even when they're not on the mountain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, I like that. The, the portable Mount Sinai. Moses you know, uh, Moses coming down from the mountain can kind of bring it with him. That's right. Uh, and so as we head towards the promised land, if everything goes according to the plan, and, and we, there are some edits to be, to be made to the plan in light of what Moses finds when he comes down to the mountain, but the plan is that uh, we're not going to go to the, to the land of promise leaving Sinai behind us. Right. But that the, the, the land of promise is going to be, become the land of permanent encounter. And there's various things about the the building of the tent that echo the first creation, that echo Mount Sinai and the cloud of God's glory coming down. There's a kind of re-entering into a Edenic-like encounter with God, 
like what happened on Mount Sinai, like what happened before Adam and Eve blew it. Here now at the tent of meeting, there's something that's echoing of that. And importantly, one of the key details that Moses lays down is that you need to uh, have a particular altar built in connection with the tent of meeting on which you place 12 loaves of bread, which will themselves serve as a perpetual sign of the covenant sacrifice that was enacted and eaten with God on Mount Sinai and that will be eaten every Sabbath by the priests in the tent. So that all of a sudden there's this ritual reenactment of eating this bread on the Sabbath in the presence of the Lord, which has both echoes of eating the manna in the wilderness, but especially echoes of eating in the court of heaven on the mountain in the sacred place. But the other thing that's really interesting about the tent of meeting that Moses builds is they're supposed to keep a jar of manna in the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, somehow the manna, which was this bread that was eaten in the wilderness when they were away from God, is also to be kept in the sanctuary. That both of these elements of eating, that eating that's symbolized by the bread of the presence and the eating that happens with manna are both somehow parts of this re-encounter with God on Mount Sinai in the tent of meeting, echoing back to Eden. And here we start to get the sense that I get so often with the Old Testament that we are seeing uh, one thing over here and one thing over there and another thing over in that place, but they're all angling towards a single reality reflected in the various ones. It's, it's as though a mirror dropped on the ground and shattered into a few pieces that all landed on the ground at slightly different angles, and they're all refl- and they all reflect the same thing. But you see, you see one reflection over here, one reflection over there, one reflection here next to me, and so it, it, in the manna. Uh, in the the showbread in the tabernacle, in the eating at Sinai, we've got these things that in the story are various, but they seem to be converging on one reality. Right. Some reality where we're going to have a kind of re-entrance to the way God was present present to Adam and Eve in Eden, at least the hope, the longing for that. We're going to go back to that. We're going to have a relationship to him that's not characterized by wandering in the wilderness, but of being with him face to face in some way. And we will eat with him. And yet at the same time, this eating will recognize that we've been wandering in the wilderness. Right, yeah, right. Right, it's, right, right, right. It, it's, it's not only our coming to the end of the journey and being with the Lord. It's also our sustenance along the journey right. to eventually being with the Lord in the, in the land of promise. Right. So, so here all of a sudden we're imagining a meal that's a return to what things should have been that both gets us there and celebrates the fact that we're there. And you just, you're like, what, what possible food is this? What, what possible food that sustains us in our purifications, that enables this encounter with God and restores us to a dignity that we have lost? Thank you for listening to the Eucharistic Podcast at Wyoming Catholic College. To learn more about Wyoming Catholic College, visit wyomingcatholic.edu.